This is a recording made in the chapter of the opened book and is number eight of the series entitled Glory. In the first case, I would like you to turn to Exodus, the 40th chapter, just as an introduction to our thought this evening. The 40th chapter, summing up the way in which Moses fulfilled the word of God with regard particularly to the construction of the tabernacle. And I would just like you to start looking at verse 17 onwards. And it came to pass in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, that the tabernacle was reared up. And then it goes on to tell you what Moses did. And as a refrain, notice at the end of verse 19, as the Lord commanded Moses. And that is repeated, verse 21, Verse 23, right the way down to, to, to well nigh the end, doesn't merely put ditto, but it repeats it. He did this as the Lord commanded Moses. He did this as the Lord commanded Moses. And then sums it up like this. Verse um, 33, the last line. So Moses finished the work. Then, notice the connection. So Moses finished the work as the Lord commanded him. Then, a cloud covered the tent of the congregation and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. I don't think you can read that story without being conscious there's a connection between a finished work and a work that was in harmony with the word of God and the glory of God as a consequence. Well, immediately you say those words, your thoughts turn to our Saviour. He finished the work that was given him to do, and he associated it with glory. So I want you now, if you will, to turn to the Gospel according to John, and I should have to ask you to keep in memory one chapter while I refer to another. Otherwise, if you like to keep turning backwards and forwards, you may do, but I think you have these scriptures in your heart and mind enough to know whether there is this passage or not that I refer to. Now, we generally speak of John 1, verses 1 to 18, as the prologue. We could call it a preface, to be up to date, if you wish. And a preface shouldn't go all around the world and talk about everything else except that which is in the book, but should be an intelligent, digest, an introduction to what is it, what's coming and worked out more fully. Well, I must confess that I've read, I suppose, this gospel and these chapters for at least 55 years. But I never quite realised how it did introduce this fact of a finished work. Let me just suggest to you John 17 is the chapter we're going to consider. And John 1 is the introduction to the gospel that contains it. Now in John 17, we are told that he had a glory. Before the world was. Before the world was is the time note of John 17. And before the world was is the time note of John 1. That's one feature. And then we have, the world was made by him, 
and the world knew him not. And so we have the strange statement at first, I pray not for the world, I pray for those thou hast given me out of the world. That must not be misread, that the Lord had no concern for the world. He says, at this moment, I am not praying for the world. I am praying for those whom the Lord has given me, the own that were in the world, in the true sense. So, John 17 and John 1 take us back to before the world was, and both of them have a reference to the world in relation to our Saviour and his prayer and his attitude. Then again, it prays with regard to other things. He says, um, I pray in John 17 that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. What do you say? What are you going to do about that? Well, don't you see? In John 1 it says, And the Word was made flesh. He came down here. And dwelt among us down here, tabernacled. And we beheld his glory. They beheld the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. They did behold his glory while he walked the earth. He said, Now I pray that I may behold my glory which thou hast given me. There is a glory mentioned in John 17 which we shall notice that was not given to him. And we shall discover that there is a glory of our Saviour that no eye will ever see. But that will leave for a moment. And so we have the emphasis at the end of, of the preface. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So would you look at the closing verse of John 17, because we're going to turn there now. John 17, verse 26. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it. Well, you may go through this prologue, chapter 1, 1 to 18, and this prayer of finish, John 17, and you may find other occurrences. I don't say I've exhausted it. I've only given you a few that stand out immediately. So now you see the relationship of the 14th, of the first chapter with the 17th. The first chapter is the introduction by John. The 17th is that sacred moment when our Saviour gathers up all that he did in harmony with what was promised of him. So I think I'm very right, aren't I, to say that there is a connection between a finished work and the glory of God. I have finished the work which thou gavest me. Glorify thy Son. Glorify thy name. Well now let's look... Um, oh, let's take a notice in John 17, the first thing that's mentioned is a time element. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, what? What would he say? The hour is come. We may not be so concerned as to whether the hour was fitting or not, but he was. And of all you read in Scripture, you discover how true it is. There's a time for every purpose under heaven. And that is used in the prophet Habakkuk, as our brother Stuart Allen in another set has drawn your attention. 
He was told a vision was yet for an appointed time, though it tarry, wait for it, for it will not really tarry. Meanwhile, the just shall live by his faith. There's a time for every purpose under heaven. Now, was our Saviour limited by time? He was. For he came to do the will of him that sent him. Don't you remember? His mother seemed to be anxious as to say, when is he going to make a move? Because, you know, she had wonderful things happening to her. An angel visited her before the son was conceived. An angel was there with regard to the uh, angels of heaven were there when he was born at Bethlehem. He had the visit of the wise men with their their uh, gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, and we are told she hid all these things in her heart. And he was that son of hers, just like a boy in Nazareth. There's no record of any miraculous thing he did, not not just a trustworthy. And then they were invited to a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and she had a sort of a hope and a wonder whether he would manifest something of his true nature. And she looked across to him, she said, I have no wine. Well, in the ordinary way, you wouldn't say that to anybody. You, If you were invited, you'd have to leave it to those who were responsible. But he knew what was in her heart. He said, woman, my hour is not yet come. It was very near, for he did manifest himself. But he reminded her that he took no instructions even from the mother that he loved. Don't forget that the word woman is a very fine term in the scriptures. We now have to say lady. Well, now we speak of the char lady. What we're going to do next to get a word, I don't know. And on the cross, he used the same word, woman. Behold, thy son had commended his mother to John. Later on, his brethren were nudging him. Why did you go up to the feast? My hour is not yet come. So there is a time element in the purpose of God, and he kept it. Well, now, John 17, the very first thing that he does, and says, These words spake Jesus, and lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour is come. If you open a history book, you discover there are epochs, and there are hours, there are moments, that are terrifically important in the outworking of human history. But was there ever an hour like this? From before the foundation of the world, we are told by Peter, our Saviour was verily set forth a land without blemish and without spot. And all those years waiting. And then in the fullness of time, he came. All the waiting was correct. Fullness of time. And then waiting again until he was a full age. In the Gospel according to Luke where we have his pedigree going back to Adam, our version says he was supposed to be a certain age. Will you try that on with a registrar today and you'll find you can't put supposed to be on any formal government document. And it's a pity they've dropped that word, because the word simply means, literally, he was legally reckoned the son of Joseph. No supposition. He was legally reckoned the son of Joseph, and Joseph had a father's responsibility, although he wasn't the true father. And he goes right the way down the pedigree until you reach Adam. 
And so we have this one coming at the right time, as God had planned, coming to the right place, though there be little among the thousands of Judah, Bethlehem. In one, in the prophet, he speaks about the thousands of Judah, and in the quotation in Matthew, he speaks about the princes of Judah, or perhaps I've got it twisted round the other way. There's no discrepancy, because just as a centurion was one who commanded a hundred men, so a prince commanded a thousand, and it was used uh, vice versa, whichever way you like. So there was the place, Bethlehem. A human instrument was used to bring about the birth of Bethlehem. God uses. But the one who brought it about and not the slightest knowledge what he was doing, the Roman emperor commanded that all the world under his care should be taxed. And the taxing had to be at your ancestral home. So Mary, who was great with child, at Nazareth, was compelled to travel to Bethlehem so that there was a possibility humanly he never would have been born at Bethlehem, but he was. And so the place at the time. And there's no event that ever can take place in Scripture, in history or in Scripture, that has no association with either time or place. They must. It must happen sometime, somewhere. And it's not accident that the time and place did, as Shakespeare puts it so wonderfully, time and place did adhere and over there. So that's something to be comforting, isn't it? That God makes a promise. God utters prophecies centuries before the time. And all sorts of human instruments unconsciously bring it about. Your time and my time is in his hands. We're not living in prophetic times. We don't expect to see signs and wonders. If we only knew, we should realise the plenty of signs and wonders that have saved us many a time without us knowing it and provided for us without us knowing it. But we look back sometimes and our hearts almost stop for a moment. We think, that was an interposition. We didn't know at the time, we see it now. But whether that's true or false, in the scriptures, there's no accidents with regard to the outworking of God's great purpose. So, a finished work as association with glory, the glory of God. And that's what our Saviour says. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. Our Saviour knew that within a relatively short time he was going to be taken by wicked hands and crucified. He told his, his very followers that they wouldn't believe him. They turned against him and said, oh no, this cannot be. And he had to rebuke Peter and said, get thee behind me, Satan. He, he was under no illusion. When he spoke of the hour had come, it was the hour of his suffering, of his crucifixion, death. But he said, that's all a part of what I came to do. They tried to dissuade him. They said, oh, don't go up to Jerusalem. But he set his face as, a, face as a flint. And he said, it could not be but that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Oh, he came to do a work. And he came to finish it. 
And now he's facing the last moments. And we have this most sacred opportunity, friends, of listening to this most wonderful prayer. If you and I put our hands on the doorknob and just pushed the door open and discovered somebody on their knees at prayer, I hope we should have the decency of quietly shutting and leaving it. But here, the most sacred of all prayer is opened for our learning. Father, the hour is come. So there's the first note. Mine hour is not yet come. Mine hour is not yet come. Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son. Is it right for anybody to ask that they themselves will be glorified? Well, that depends, doesn't it? That depends upon the reason why, doesn't it? But we're not left guessing here. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. And the glorifying of the Son included the mockery, the crucifixion, the death, the burial. Now I anticipate one verse which I've never been able to fully explain to myself. It comes in Romans the sixth chapter that Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. It says so and we must believe it but what does it mean? He was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Well we just leave it I think. It's so wonderful that there's no human explanation but it's associated here you see. A finished work. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. Let's come a little further with this wonderful prayer and some of its bearings. Verse 2. As there was given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. That's three times in one verse. Give, given. That, you see, is a little bit in harmony with the passage I touched upon just now when he said, verse 9, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me. That you mustn't see this, that verse out and say, Christ had no interest in the world, because that's contradicted by John 3.16. God so loved the world without distinction and gave his only begotten Son. But now, he is particularly dealing with his own. Look at chapter um, uh, verse, uh, chapter 13 verse 1 Now therefore before the peace feast of the Passover when Jesus knew that his hour was come you see it's already there he knew his hour was come that he should depart out of this world unto the Father having loved who? his own which were in the world you see, he came to a, uh, his own, and his own received him not. That's one lot. But he is an own that were in the world that were a selective lot, and they were given to him. Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them to the end. An everlasting love. An unchanging love. We ourselves hope that our love, if we have any towards our dear ones, would have that character. Sometimes it breaks, doesn't it? Sometimes it falters. But there's one love that's in this book that loves right to the end. 
And that's this love that led our Saviour to Calvary. And that's the love of God that ultimately raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand, all on our account to be an intercessor for us. And our life is hid with Christ in God, a finished work indeed, and a love beyond our really attempt on our part to reach the bottom. You notice the emphasis upon the word given, again in John 17, verses 22 and 24. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them. I want you to be very careful now with regard to the glory of the Lord himself, and it's an opportunity to just draw that distinction. I, I think we'll read um, verse 22 onwards for a bit. <clears throat> and the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and thou hast loved them as thou loved, hast loved me. Father, I will... i stop for a moment. This I've said before, it's always a striking thought to me. I don't know of anyone, any saint of God, however saintly he may be, I don't know of any character in the Bible, or outside of it, who has ever been on his knees in the presence of God and said, Father, I will. Because it would almost be blasphemy for any one of our caliber to go into the presence of God and tell God, Father, I will. This one says, one with us, in a sense that we can only stand back and wonder at, we cannot explain. But here it is, Father, I will. That they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. He doesn't say behold my glory and stop there. Behold my glory which thou hast given me. If you will turn for a moment to the first of Timothy, which speaks of the mystery of godliness, you'll find that there is a statement there that's worth pondering with regard to the glory of the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 13, chapter 6. He's giving him a charge, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's no doubt about who is in view. God the Father is never spoken of as appearing, and the Lord Jesus Christ is mentioned by his full title which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, that's his title, isn't it, in the book of the Revelation, yes, who only hath immortality, now here's the point, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see. So there's a glory belonging to our Saviour which is unapproachable. Now, in this John 17, what he prays for is, um, Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. 
Not then that thou mayest behold my glory essentially, which is mine and mine alone, a given glory. We can't share that which is to do with deity. We can only share that which is to do with his stooping down humanity and becoming our saviour, our kinsman, redeemer. And we can behold that glory. So we've got in chapter 1, when he was born at Bethlehem, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. And a day is coming when that self-same one, in that day, we're going to behold his glory. But it's the glory that was given him. And in, to illustrate the point a bit more, will you turn for a moment to Hebrews? The Epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 1. Chapter 1. I just want to draw your attention to a few outstanding titles, and then, with that in view, look at a verse that's uh, to do with our subject. It says in verse 2, concerning the Son of God, by whom also he made the worlds, concerning his other character, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power. Now that's Christ. He goes on to say, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Or again, we may look a bit further down, verse 8, but unto the Son, he saith, in contrast to angels, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, the, the problem that arises by the mere casual reader, which I trust that are known in this chapel, you know full well that every point that's to be watched <coughs> is found in verse 4. <coughs> Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now, supposing you're not very clear over things, you say, it's strange. This one who upholds all things by the word of his power. Surely he's better than angels. This one, whom the scripture itself in this chapter calls upon angels to worship him. Let all the angels of God worship him. Surely he must be better than angels. But yet it says he's inherited it. Oh, that's it. Will you look at the next chapter to find the answer? Chapter 2. He's speaking about man in verse 6. What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, thou crownest him with glory and honour, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. Now that's dealing with Adam. And the all things which are put under his feet are defined as sheep and oxen and fowls and fish. But do we read about sheep and oxen and fowls here? You go on and read. He hath put all things in subjection under his feet, under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Ah, don't you see? He was made a little lower than the angels. And because of his suffering unto death and the work that he did, he has been given a name which is above that of the angels. He has inherited a name. This has nothing to do with his deity. 
This is because he came and did the work that was allotted to him and he can say these words, Father, I will that they behold the glory which thou hast given me. So I'll come back to Hebrews 1 and 4. Being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. He's inherited it. But our Saviour, long before this took place, had the glory with the Father before the world was. So in John 17 he prays that those whom the Father had given to him might behold the glory that had been given to him and which he was wishing that they should see and which they should share. So we do want to be on our guard with regard to just what is intended when we use some of these terms, glory among others. There's an emphasis too in John 17 on the name, which I think we ought to just lift out, because names mean something in the Bible. Even the names of people are meaningful. Not always, they don't always live up to it, but in the beginning, names had association with their person, with their place, with God's purpose for them, as you can begin to see Adam, is associated with the word image or likeness because we are told a double statement let us make man in our likeness after our image but if you get the order of the words just as they're written let us make man in the likeness of our image and Christ is the image of the invisible God and Adam was in the likeness of the invisible God see, in the likeness of him and Eve was given the name living that means life. Cain means gotten or gained. Seth means set or placed. Then somebody wanted to stuff me up that at the beginning they hadn't got a language. They all went ooh, ooh, ah, ah, and all funny sounds. But what about Adam calling his wife's name Eve and Eve calling his son, her first son Cain and it tells you what it means. I'd rather believe that was in the Bible than all this other bow-wow theory of uh, the origin of language. I don't know how you feel about it. The gift of God. A solemn gift of God language, friends. God's only medium to tell us what he wants us to learn is a word book. You say, mere words. Oh, what power. Even as a poet has said. That is mightier than the sword in the hands of those who are truly great. The word. So here we have then the name of God is mentioned two or three times with certain amount of emphasis. So, John 17, once again, verse um, 6, I think it is, I have manifested thy name unto the men. Look at the last verse, 26. I have declared unto them thy name. So it was very much a burden of our Saviour's witness that he remembers before the Father, that he gave them, he manifested, he declared, he made plain, he opened up, he gave an exposition, all these words of the name of God. And particularly, what it meant for God to be a Father. You might think anybody would know that. But God, as a Father, fills the word out that no human parent has ever done. We're only poor little limping shadows. You know, as I said once, I say it with all my heart because I felt it. 
when I had to go to hospital and was there, I, d- I thought to myself, well, I haven't had much time for prayer. It's so much work has to be done. Here's the opportunity. And then I was unable to pray. I lay there without saying anything or doing anything. And I came to the conclusion that if I could only utter the one word, Father, I've said all that prayer can ever comprehend. If I go on and fill it out, whether you let me do it, but if, if God is my Father through Christ, what is there can touch me, harm me, or reward me in any shape or form unless he permits. And if he permits, well, even I, friend, am not quite perfect. I don't need me to stand in this pulpit and say so. So I read in the epistle of the Hebrews that he scourgeth every son that he receiveth, the father does. So we're an obstreperous lot, most of us, even though we're believers. And he says, he sympathises with us, he says, no chastisement for the moment is joyful, but rather grievous. And then he says, nevertheless, afterwards, it yielded the peaceable fruits of righteousness to those who are exercised thereby. And all that is incipient in the fact that God is our Father, who oh, I've only touched the fringe, whatever must it have been like to have been in the company of that Son of God, that son who looked up to the father and said, Abba, father, my father. Must I not be about my father's business? Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Oh, that man, that son of God, that father that he declared and explained. And don't you know once in this John's Gospel, one of them said to him, Show us the father. And it sufficeth us. As I've said before, this Bible is a very wonderful record. It gives you the little fancy words that certain people used. If you go through and read what it says about John or Thomas or Peter or Paul, you'll find they've got their little pet words. I've got mine. You know what's coming sometimes. Here he goes again, you see. And when our Lord challenged Philip and said, about feeding these 5,000, well, he said, 200 penny of the bread would not suffice, would not be sufficient. And sure enough, when he speaks again, he says, show us the Father as it's sufficient. See? That was one of the words he was out for, sufficient. And then our Saviour said, have I been so long time with you? These have seen me, have seen the Father I came to manifest him. There's been a fuller manifestation of the Father than all the angels of glory could ever give. And so he says, I have declared it, I will declare it, I will make manifest. And let's be thankful that he has done so. Oh friends, if you're ever in a fix and don't know what to pray for, just utter one word. Father. And then finish it in the name of thy son. I don't think you need to add more to that sometimes and let him go on and do what is right and good for you as you trust in him. So we have this emphasis upon the name, verse 11 of this same chapter. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Now notice the next thing, not farther. 
Holy Father. In this chapter, he says, Father. He says, Holy Father. He says, Righteous Father. The Son of God recognized these attributes of the Father that sent him. It's right for us to go into his presence and say, Our Father. But you do know that our Saviour never said that. He never said, Our Father. He said, Go and tell speak about my father and your father not our father we are a family and he is distinct from it all and yet so linked with us so there is that reverence and yet that familiarity which have a wonderful blending if only we're in the right spirit so he says here holy father keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me that they may be one. As we are always so keen here in this, this prayer for their unity. He says it again. That they may be perfected into one. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. That they may, be, they may know that thou hast sent me. We need not utter a single word, friend. We need not give a tract away in the streets. We be silent. But we can make it manifest that we belong to him. I don't say you ought not to give away tracts. I don't say you ought to be silent. But our very relationship should be so obvious that the world may believe that that one was sent to bring that about. And so the emphasis upon the name. Again, while we're looking at this, verse 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept. So there's a keeping power, apparently, recognised by the Lord in that name. And then he remarks upon the one that was the exception. But the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Somewhere, I've never looked it up, although I was asked about it, I had no opportunity at the moment, and then my mind is like a sieve, friends, now I forget things next five minutes. Was Judas ever given to Christ, the one who betrayed him. He called some, and he said they were given him. But this one joined him. I don't know whether I'm on the right track here or not. And he accepted it. I know, he says, that one of you is a devil. Yet he tolerated him, and never gave him away to his fellows. They didn't suspect him. But anyhow, he recognises here that there was one that wasn't kept. Judas. But he also explains that he was not given. And he also explains that the scripture might be fulfilled for the scripture already said. My own familiar friend who has eaten with me has lifted up his heel against me. That's in the Old Testament foreshadowing what took place in this, in this, in this occasion. And while we're uh, on the subject, once more, verse 26. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it. So there is some potency in this declared, manifested name, which our Saviour was so keen to keep alive. You notice the emphasis upon the word sent. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Verse 21. And again, further down. 
the world may know that thou hast sent me. I think you do know this, that the word sent gives us the word apostle. Stero is the word to send. And apo means away from. And apostero means one who is sent on a commission to represent somebody else. Well, it's the essence of salvation to know that Christ was sent. The Father sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. Some year or two back, I put that outside on a little thing on the railings, and a minister walked into this chapel. He said, I couldn't pass this chapel without coming in. That's a splendid text you got out there. I said, oh, I'm glad you believe it too. And he was commissioned by the Bishop of London to go and speak at any church, chapel or anything. A roving commission. I don't know whether he expected to come here, but we never heard of him again. But that's a wonderful text, friends. The Father sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. And he said, I pray that they may know and believe that thou hast sent me. So if anyone says to you, or asks you the question, who is the greatest of the apostles? Just stop for a minute. Don't say Paul. Hebrew says that Christ is the high priest and the apostle of our calling. He was the true sent one. And he said, I'm sending you even as my father sent me. So that's the commission. Well, our, our time is practically up. What is the effect of this answer to the prayer that they may behold my glory? I think there's a transfiguring effect, friends. The first epistle written by this same man, John, he says, Beloved, we know not what we shall be, but when we shall see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's a transfiguring sight, isn't it? I mean, I might look at people, you might look at me, and you're not transfigured. But if anyone can see that glorious one, and see all that that glory encompasses, it transfigures them. And a day is coming when they're going to be like him, for they shall see him as he is. Going quite outside the scriptures, Tennyson, writing about the infatuation in the reign of King Arthur, Guinevere says at last, we needs must love the highest when we see it. Oh, friends, sometimes we don't love the highest because our eyes are shut or they are fixed upon the wrong object. But when our eyes see him, when we shall behold his glory, not merely as the one was made flesh and dwelt among us, but the one who went right through to the hour and said, Father, the hour is come. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Now it's this, the cross. And on the cross he added the words again. It is finished. And whenever you hear the word television, just remember the sacredness of that word telly. For it was the verbal form of the word telly that our Saviour used on the cross. Titaliki. It is finished. For the word television means distance, seeing at a distance. Telephone, telegram, telescope, they all mean distance. And our Saviour said, I have come the full distance, right to the cross. I finished. What a blessed thing to be able to stand in any remote relationship to such a position. There was a man, 
who said, I have finished my course. That's Paul. So it's possible for even a poor human like ourselves to enter into something of the approximation of this glorious fact that we can go into the presence of him who is our Father and say, Father, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. I don't think there's anything that can touch that as a sort of a crown in this life before the crown is given in that.